On today's episode of the Keto Camp Podcast, we take a deep dive into seed oils. Oh my gosh, you're in for quite the ride with Dr. Chris Kenobi. Vegetable oils are the single greatest component on a caloric basis of processed foods. And this is where there's a disconnect because nobody argues that processed foods are the problem. Nobody argues that. The you know, American Heart Association to World Health Organization, the Pan American Health Organization, all of the major institutions that all tell you processed foods are bad. What is the number one component of processed foods on a caloric basis? It's vegetable oils. We have access to ancient healing strategies such as ketosis, fasting, and carnivore. And on the Keto Camp Podcast, we are determined to deliver the science to you. We bring in the thought leaders in this space to have extraordinary conversations so you could apply it and change your life. Your body was built to thrive. Your body is capable of healing as long as you identify the interference and remove it. I believe you are a masterpiece because you are a piece of the master. My name is Ben Azadi. I'm the best-selling author of Keto Flex, and I want to thank you for spending part of your day with me. Hey, Keto Camper, Ben Azadi here, the host of the Keto Camp Podcast. Thank you for pressing play today. We talk a lot about PUFAs, polyunsaturated fatty acids, linoleic acid, these unstable inflammatory fats that are everywhere, especially in the keto space. And we put a lot of content out on this topic because it's so inflammatory and one of the major causes for so many diseases out there. And we bring on one of the leading researchers on PUFAs and vegetable oils, Dr. Chris Kenobi. I've been following his work for many, many years. I've gotten so much from his research, his dedication to this topic. And he has a brand new book that's incredible the most comprehensive uh, research-backed history of vegetable oils. You're going to be blown away. He makes a strong case to why vegetable oils are the number one cause to disease. And he's going to give you some incredible research that's going to be just incredibly mind-blowing and actually make you angry. His book is called The Ancestral Diet Revolution, How Vegetable Oils and Processed Foods Destroy Our Health, and it just came out. You can get it right now. We drop a link in the notes for you down below. We had a fun conversation. We talked about uh, several things, including what to do at restaurants. How do you avoid these inflammatory fats at restaurants? We'll talk about his backstory dealing with poor health, arthritis, and he discovered paleo, and that opened up a whole new world to him. He's a specialist in ophthalmology. We'll talk about macular degeneration. We'll get into the half-life of linoleic acid. How do we speed it up? How do we get rid of them faster? Because it takes a long time. You'll hear on average 600 to 680 days to remove half of them from your body. But there are ways to speed that up. We'll talk about that. We'll get into some of the foods to stay away from in terms of chicken and pork and why those are higher in linoleic acid, how to test for linoleic acid, how do you measure it, What about inflammatory markers? Will that show up right away when you consume vegetable oils or does it happen over time? And of course, we take a deep dive into his book. You're going to love today's conversation. If you have any interest in vegetable oils or 
even if you're like not even familiar with vegetable oils or you've taken a deep dive in the past, this episode is for you. I love today's episode. You're going to love the book. I hope you get it as well. Before I bring on Dr. Chris Kenobi, I want to take a moment here to acknowledge and give a nice shout out to today's Apple Podcast rating and review. This is a short and sweet one from VI4762 titled New to Keto, five-star review. Ben, I came across your story while searching for a healthier approach to fasting and reducing blood sugar. I have discovered you. Your podcast is a wealth of life-saving knowledge. Thank you. I love that VI. So grateful you came across me and you're listening to the show. Fasting is definitely a fantastic way to lower blood sugars. Combine that with keto. Oh my gosh, what a one-two punch. But you got to avoid the vegetable oil. So we'll talk about that today. If you have not left the Keto Camp Podcast a rating or a review yet, please do so on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast you're listening from today. It makes a huge difference for the show. Okay, let's get into today's conversation with Dr. Chris Kenobi. Dr. Chris Kenobi, MD, is an eye physician and surgeon who has been in practice for nearly 20 years. When in 2013, he asked himself the question, could macular degeneration be a westernized disease? Could AMD be a disease that is a result of a westernized diet? The question would forever change his life. He began his practice of ophthalmology back in 1994 after completing his residency training at the University of Colorado Health Sciences Center in Denver, Colorado. He was certified by the American Board of Ophthalmology in 1997 and has remained board certified since then. Here's Dr. Chris Kenobi. Dr. Chris Kenobi, welcome to the Keto Camp Podcast. I'm so excited to have you here. Thanks for having me on, Ben. It's an honor and a pleasure. It, it is mine as well. I was just telling you offline that I've been a huge fan of your work and I've been wanting you to come on the show for a very long time. And it's perfect timing because you have a brand new book that's out, which we'll, we'll talk about. And you've done an extensive amount of research on PUFAs, uh, linoleic acid, vegetable oils. And we're going to take a deep dive. So those, for those watching and listening, like take a whole bunch of notes, rewatch, re-listen. This is going to be a deep dive. We're going to extract some golden nuggets from your book. But let's rewind before we get to that, Chris, because you have a, a pain to purpose story, like many of my guests do, where you had a lot of health challenges and you were trying to figure out the puzzles to that piece, uh, the pieces of the puzzle, and uh, you came across some of the answers. So go ahead and share your story. Yeah, my you know research, my interest in nutrition really was born out of um, out of my own suffering, and I, I won't spend too long talking about this because uh, people probably you know have probably who've heard me before have heard this before, but but really it was uh, born out of my own suffering, mostly with arthritis over the years, and people who actually saw me a few years ago also know that. Uh, you know, it's kind of embarrassing, but my hair was dark because I my hair went, started going gray when I was 14 years old. And I started, you know, when I was a freshman in college, I started coloring my hair because uh, I was tired of people telling me I had gray hair. And then I started getting arthritis in my early 30s. It became progressive and just really became severe by the time I was 50. And you know, I'd seen many, many physicians uh, over the years for my arthritis and received all the standard treatments, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, um, steroid injections, 
but nothing ever really helped except just very, you know, short term. And um, eventually I, I came across the paleo diet, which was not that long ago. It was in t- 2011 for me. And some changes in my diet just made a massive difference. And um, just in a few days, just in, in about seven to 10 days, my arthritis was improved by about 80%. And it, th- this has been another complicated story, which I won't go into right now, Ben, but after that change in my arthritis and the fact that I'd probably seen at least 15 colleague physicians at that time, orthopedic surgeons, family docs, internists, a, rheum- a rheumatologist, and no one had ever even suggested that uh, dietary change might have any effect whatsoever. And this was so um, extraordinary to me that I then, because it was paleo that was helping me at the time, I I read Lauren Cordain's book, The Paleo Answer, and I was just absolutely blown away that all of this chronic disease, heart disease to, to diabetes, obesity, and so forth could be related to processed foods. But there, was, there were things you know, that, uh, about Lauren Cordain's hypothesis and his research that I wasn't really in agreement with. For example, saturated fat didn't, didn't make any sense to me that that could be a problem. And so I eventually came across Weston Price's research in 2013, and probably most of your listeners already know Weston Price's research, so I won't go into that. But it, but it taught me that the fundamentals that I live by today, which is that it is primarily processed foods, refined flours, refined sugars, and vegetable oils that are the primary drivers. It's processed foods. And I'm an ophthalmologist by training and had a full career in ophthalmology um, I left ophthalmology in 2015 because in 2013, it had occurred to me that processed foods and, well, whatever those contain might be the drivers of age-related macular degeneration, AMD, which is the leading cause of irreversible vision loss and blindness in people over the age of 50 worldwide. And you know, if you talk to ophthalmologists or optometrists, you'll know that we see yeah, and it, you, we may see multiple patients with macular degeneration on a typical day, but it turns out that in the 19th century, this disease was extraordinarily rare. In fact, in the first 80 years of potential discovery between 1851 and 1930, approximately, there was no more than 50 cases of macular degeneration in all of the world's literature. And yet today, Ben, as of 2020, there's estimated to be 196 million people with macular degeneration, 288 million expected to have macular degeneration by 2040. And of those, way back in 2006, the World Health Organization had already estimated that 14 million people were bilaterally either blind or severely visually impaired from macular degeneration. So we have millions of people today blind from macular degeneration, and yet the disease was virtually unknown for an 80-year period between 1851 and 1930, all right? So I left practice, put all of my efforts into researching this with with some colleague ophthalmologists in the South Pacific and one nutrition researcher, Maria Stoyanowska from Macedonia, who helped me intensively for a couple of years. And uh, anyway, we, we researched the uh, consumption of sugar and vegetable oils in 25 nations in relation to the prevalence of macular degeneration. 
And the data fit the hypothesis in every single case. It was, yeah, as the vegetable oils and sugars went up, so did the vegetable oils. I mean, so, so did the macular degeneration. The vegetable oils in three Pacific islands, Solomon Islands, Kiribati, and Samoa, they were exceedingly low, almost zero, and those islands have almost no macular degeneration. It's like 0.2% of people over the age of 60. Did they consume sugar? Only one, Kiribati. And for those who want to look this up, it look, look, looks like Kiribati is what I thought the, the pronunciation was. It's K-I-R-I-B-A-T-I. And Kiribati has about a population of about 115,000 back in 2015. And they had one ophthalmologist for the entire population. And he saw two cases of macular degeneration in that year, 2015. And they had pretty high sugar consumption, 60 to 80 uh, grams per person per day through a lot of those decades, but they had almost no vegetable oil and they just had almost no macular degeneration. And so anyway, so this is the path I went down, Ben, was this until about 2018, 2019. I just became more and more convinced that it was the vegetable oils and the high omega-6 that were the primary drivers of all this chronic disease. And I saw there was precious few people that were we're, you know, we're pursuing this and I'm a data junkie and I, and anybody who's looks at my work or looks at this coming book or my past book will see that if I can't show that the data supports it, I'm not going to, I'm not, I won't present it. And so in 2019, I started presenting on the correlations and the causation the, 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 what, what I believe is the causation between vegetable oil consumption, high omega-6 diets and all of this chronic disease, coronary heart disease, strokes, cancer, type 2 diabetes, metabolic syndrome, Alzheimer's, dementia, macular degeneration, of course, autoimmune diseases, and the list goes on and on. So that's where I've been basically have been in the last uh, number of years. So now this, this is what I do. I consider myself a nutrition researcher and a public health advocate. That's what I do today. And so we run two, two nonprofit organizations I do not get paid to do this work, just so any, anyone knows. I don't have any agendas. I don't care what the answers are. I care about what the effects are and how that affects you know, the people around the world. So I'm here for your listeners. I'm here for the viewers. I'm here for anyone who cares to listen or who is interested in their health. This is what I do. Yeah, and I love that you're doing it. We're, we're grateful that you do. The argument against you know studies that are just showing correlation is it's not causation, and we get that. But you're also that's the starting point to actually find causation, right? So, and it's a these are strong correlations, not just what you just shared, but you in your book you talk about Japan and other countries and strong correlations to really investigate it. But my question to you is this: what's the what's the pathway? What's the metabolic pathway that makes vegetable oils, linoleic acid, etc cause these diseases? Like what's happening when we take them in our food supply? Right. So there is basically what I would submit as four pillars of hazard when you consume high omega-6 and it's just it's not just the seed oils. We can get into that, but that is the, the of course the primary driver of the high omega-6 is the seed oils. But but when you consume high omega-6 and these oils which contain other ingredients we can get to, the omega-6 
uh, and these advanced lipid oxidation components, they accumulate in our bodies. So omega-6 linoleic acid, which is the primary omega-6 fatty acid or fat in vegetable oils, it accumulates in our body fat, in our cellular membranes, and in our mitochondrial membranes. And ultimately, these four pillars of hazard are, it, it is, it, this sets up an environment for a biological milieu that is pro-oxidative, pro-inflammatory, directly toxic to cells, and nutrient deficient. And I say, when you put these four pillars of hazard together, you have the recipe for metabolic disaster. So the vegetable oils, I call them chronic metabolic biological poisons. So these are not really all that much acute poisons. In other words, if you drink three cups of uh, vegetable oil today, you're still not gonna die. It's, a, you know, it's an extraordinary dose, but I don't think it'll kill you most likely, although it will increase your risk of having clots today, but it probably won't kill you. And this is how you know, vegetable oils have gotten into the food supply, stayed in the food supply, and now increased in the food supply, primarily is the fact that they're chronic poisons. And so they gradually, you know, poison our bodies uh, through these mechanisms. And we end up with a plethora of diseases of, you know, many varieties. And, you know, if you and I, Ben, eat the exact same diet with the same amount of vegetable oils, and we're both consuming, a, you know, a standard American diet, let's say, you may be more genetically prone to, more gen genetically susceptible to, let's say, cancer. I might be more genetically prone to arthritis or heart disease, right? Or macular degeneration. And this is the thing. So everybody indeed has genetic susceptibilities. I admit that. But it is environment that pulls the trigger. And in my view, that environment is roughly, I think, 99% diet. So the worst possible diet really is a standard American diet because it's high in the vegetable oils, it's high in omega-6, and it's high in the other processed food components, sugars and refined flours and trans fats, which ultimately sets up this kind of an environment. You have combined nutrient deficiency and toxicity so, uh, from the two of those. So it's the nutrient deficiency from the processed carbs primarily in my view, and it is the toxicity from the high omega-6. And you just, that, that's, how, that, that's how we end up going down this, this path of metabolic disaster. So when we think about this metabolic disaster that we see, uh, Harvard put out an article last year projecting by the year 2030, 50% plus of the adult population in the United States will be classified as obese, not just overweight, but actually obese. So there's a few theories out there, and I, I kind of get an idea of where you, you think the, the cause is, but uh, the theories are these to why we have obesity. Seed oils, right? Too many omega-6, PUFAs, et cetera, too much processed sugar. And to your point, some, they usually come packaged together. Not enough protein. We're over-consuming calories because they're nutrient deficient, trying to get that protein requirement. That's another theory. Another theory is just lack of purpose. You know, the mental stress, you know, makes you eat and kind of fill the hole of not living a life on purpose with your purpose. And then there's a sedentary lifestyle and then genetics. So I know all of these contribute, but which one and why is the biggest driver here? Well, if we look at, for example, I'll give you, I think, what is, to try to answer this in one fell swoop. You know, first of all, 
you know, 19th century Americans, the, the obesity was 1.2% in men age 18 to 80. That's Scott Allen Carson's work. He looked at um, male prisoners um, ages 18 to 80 in mostly in uh, Texas and Nebraska uh, prisons. So they measured their height and weight as they came in. And so they could, you could calculate their BMI. And anybody who, if you watch videos or look at pictures from the 19th century, you see that you, it does appear that right around 1% of the people are probably obese. And you have to keep in mind, too, that being overweight or obese was actually an attractive thing to a lot of people at that time. Being overweight was consistent with being wealthy. And because uh, only the wealthy, you know, could afford to eat that much food, essentially, was, was the case back then. So, you know, what has happened is, is that vegetable oils entered the food supply really in the United States in 1866, right after the American Civil War. Um, and they uh, approximately were ranged between about one to two grams, um, always less than two grams up until 1909 when soybean oil was introduced. And Crisco was introduced, which was a uh, which was made out of cottonseed oil. But anyway, and then and then there was a a, a landslide of all these other oils that entered the food supply. Um, so we got you know we so I'll just name them: soybean, corn, canola, cottonseed, rapeseed, grapeseed, sunflower, safflower, rice bran, sesame, and peanut oils. And think about this: up through the American Civil War, we didn't have any of those. None of those were in the food supply. The only thing that was possible in America, for example, and we could talk about the whole world too, which is pretty similar, but the only thing that was available generally was olive oil and in incredibly small amounts. Very few people could get, even get olive oil up through the American Civil War in the U.S. It couldn't be transported those kinds of distances and still be worth consuming. And so along with this, Obesity has just risen progressively. So obesity went to from 1.2% in the 19th century to the next data we have is 13% in 1960. And then we were at 24% in, around, in the late 80s, I think 1988. Uh, today, if you jump all the way to 2018, it's 42.5%. And if you look at um, the vegetable oil, so we went from zero in 1865 to around one gram a day in 1900 to 19 and a half grams a day by 1961, all the way to 80 grams a day by 2010. So by 2010, vegetable oils, which didn't exist in the, through the American Civil War, now accounted for 32% of U.S. caloric intake. And that does not account for losses. So if, there's, if you account for some losses there, I would estimate at least the typical consumption is at least 24%, if not higher. And a lot of people are consuming one-third of their calories coming from vegetable oils. And they really don't realize it because they're not pouring vegetable oil into their food. They are simply getting it from processed foods, from restaurant foods, and from fast foods. All right. And a 50% of diet of, of food consumption today is coming from outside the home. So this is where we're getting all these. People don't need to spoon one teaspoon of vegetable oil into their food to get that much. Well, all right, so let's look at that. If you, if you look at sugar, for example, sugar has been in the food supply for hundreds of years, but it was a, an expensive commodity uh, up until the late 19th century. But Americans loved their sweets. And by 1890, 10.8% of the diet was sugar. And by 1907, it was around 15% of the diet was sugar. 1935, 
22.5% of the diet was sugar. Jump all the way to 2016, and sugar is 24% of American calories consumed. So sugar only went up 1.5% as an absolute percentage of the diet, and it went up 86 calories between 1935 and 2016. All right? An absolute increase of 1.5%. Vegetable oils in 1935, I'm just using 1935 because it's, it, you know, I, I know the data from, from this era. So 1935, Americans consumed 146 calories of vegetable oil, I believe it was. But by 2010, it was 713 calories. So vegetable oils were accounted for 7.5% of the diet in 1935, but 29% of the diet in 2010, roughly. Or uh, Okay, or maybe it was 16. But anyway, the, those numbers are approximate, all right? So in other words, while sugar went up between 1935 and 2016, sugar went up 1.5% as an absolute number as a percentage of the diet. Vegetable oils went up 21.5% of the diet. In other words, a fifth of everyone's plate of food for every single meal, 365 days a year, became vegetable oils during this period of time. In other words, we supplanted a fifth of our food consumption with vegetable oils, right? We supplanted one and a half percent with additional sugar. So you tell me, you know, so th this is the thing. And, and since 1999, uh, or at least since 2004, sugar has been on the decline in the United States while obesity and diabetes go through the roof. Since 1997, carbohydrates have been on the decline in the United States while obesity and diabetes go through the roof. Since 2002, calories have been going down in the United States while obesity and diabetes and metabolic syndrome and Alzheimer's and dementia and what else all goes through the roof, right? And we can go through this with different countries. And everywhere I look, Ben, it's the same thing. So people can talk metabolic pathways all they want to. And you can go on and on with this. And I don't have a problem with anybody doing that. I, I, I commend anybody who wants to try to figure this out by looking at metabolic pathways and you know, trying to figure out what's causing insulin resistance at the cellular level. But I tell you, you're headed for a mistaken place, I think, generally, when you just look at metabolic pathways because you don't have the evidence you know, you're not looking at what's happening in the population. And then people will say, you know, as you mentioned early on, Ben, is, well, this is a great place to start. We've got population data. We have observational data. So, and people will sometimes say, well, with observational data, population data, this is a great place to develop hypotheses, right? And then we can test them in a RCCT, a randomized controlled clinical trial. And to that, I would say, show me a trial that controls a diet for more than six months. There aren't any. To control a diet completely, you have to put people into a metabolic ward, right? And you have to control everything they eat and track everything they consume. It's extraordinarily expensive. And you can only do it with a very small number of people for a very short period of time. And even those studies, they haven't tested this hypothesis, you know, this seed oil, like, like you know, Gary Taub's work with the NUSI, um, you know, they tested, you know, high carbohydrate versus, you know, um, low carbohydrate diets, right? And, but they weren't really looking at omega-6. So this has really never been tested 
in people, even over a short period of time. It's been tested in animals. And, and, you know, and if people think that, well, you can't draw conclusions from the population evidence, I would argue vehemently that you can, and that it is by far and away the best evidence. Just as I was just mentioning, we've got data going back a century and a half. And, you know, if you, when you look at populations at large, it's just like, you know, if, if I say to you 42.5% of Americans are obese as of 2018, that's population evidence that's meaningful, right? And it's the same thing when you look at the diet. If you look at the diet as a whole for the entire nation, there's meaningful evidence there. And I might, you know, for people who want to continue to argue and say, well, you know, you, you don't have a randomized controlled clinical trial to prove that, you know, these vegetable oils are driving heart disease, they're driving Alzheimer's, they're driving macular degeneration, they're driving dementia, whatever you want to pick, right? Many of these conditions, first of all, they're, they have incubation periods. And the incubation period for these diseases, these conditions, is decades, right? Like how many people, you know, have a heart attack before age 40? And how many people develop Alzheimer's before age 50 or 60? And this is similar with macular degeneration. How many before age 40, right? So how long would you have to put, you know, put people into a randomized controlled clinical trial in order to have really solid evidence and control their diet? The answer is decades, right? And, you know, I might take this argument a bit further and say, all right, and they say, we have people say, well, you have to have a randomized controlled clinical trial. Otherwise, you know, you don't have a test that proves your theory holds water. To that, I might say, Ben, I might say, well, do you believe smoking causes lung cancer? <laughs> yes. Okay. If you do, um, it, has there been a randomized controlled clinical trial? No. Did we ever take a thousand 13 year olds and put them, you know, randomize them to smoke and another thousand 13 year olds and randomize them not to smoke and follow them for 50 years? Never happened. Right. It never happened. And it, it's obviously not going to, but yet we all know smoking causes cancer. Why? Because if you smoke for 50 years, you take that exact scenario I just presented, you smoke for about 50 or 60 years, your increase in lung cancer will go up 15 to 30 fold and your risk of dying of lung cancer will go up 15 to 30 fold. Okay. 15 to 30 fold. Now, what does, what does this tell us? Well, people that get lung cancer also, some of them don't smoke. They never smoked, right? It's one out of 15 to uh, one out of 30 approximately, right? And so they never smoked at all. So how do we arrive at this conclusion? It's population data and the evidence that we have exactly as you, we can do with the diet. Now, let's you know, apply that to obesity, right? So we know that obesity since the 19th century uh, between you know 1900 and 2018, obesity has increased 35-fold. It went from 1.2% to 42.5%. It increased 35-fold. That's a 3,400% increase. You know that's higher. That alone is you know worse than the statistics on smoking, right? And if you look at coronary heart disease, it was virtually unknown in the 19th century. You know, there's eight papers on coronary heart disease in the entire 19th century. You know, by the 1930s, as vegetable oils, you know, were, were going up in the United States, you know, coronary heart disease became the leading cause of death, right? And has remained so ever since, right? And age-related macular degeneration, dementia, Alzheimer's disease have all gone up 
exponentially, you know, essentially almost infinitely. Um, they've gone up thousands of fold for sure. So coronary heart disease, you know, dementia, Alzheimer's, macular degeneration, these dis- disorders have gone up thousands of fold. And you, it, the, the data all there is all there. It's, it's inargu- inarguable, right? And so these are the arguments I would make to, you know, with anybody who believes that we cannot draw causal inference from all of this data. I believe that you can, and I make that argument in this book. Yeah, and by the way, the book is called The Ancestral Diet Revolution. I'm holding it up for those watching on YouTube, How Vegetable Oils and Processed Foods Destroy Our Health and How to Recover. And there's a whole bunch of graphs and illustrations, and it's just loaded with research. So everybody, the book is out right now. If you're watching on YouTube, we'll put the link below. If you're listening, go get the book. This is a great way to understand what exactly Dr. Chris Kenobi is talking about here with these vegetables. Like you, you make a strong case. I agree with you 100%. I'm sharing with you some of the comments I get on social media when I start talking about vegetables. So your answers are spot on. I completely agree with you. Hey, when was the last time you bit into a juicy burger or a perfectly cooked steak and thought to yourself, this is the best thing I've ever tasted? If it's been a while, it's probably because most meat products are conventionally raised, which not only affects the flavor profile, but significantly diminishes the beneficial nutrients and minerals. And believe it or not, even products that are labeled as grass-fed or ethically raised, to make you think they're high quality, are often finished on grain or in factory farms, which is why I am so excited to share something with you today that will not only help you avoid the hormones, antibiotics, and pesticide residues that diminish the taste of conventionally raised meat, but could also save you nearly $1,000 over the next year on your grocery bill. And the best part? This may be the best tasting thing you've had in a long time. So what the heck am I talking about? I'm talking about Wild Pastures Meat Delivery. They provide the highest quality meats from small, regenerative, family-run farms here in the United States that prioritize sustainability and animal welfare. Their beef is 100% grass-fed. Their pork and poultry are pasture-raised, something you won't find anywhere in the grocery store, resulting in meats that are not only healthier for you, but also better for the environment. One of the reasons why me and my fiance Natasha loves wild pastures is that we can opt out out of supporting harmful conventional farming practices and instead support small family-run farms without spending a fortune. And the convenience doesn't stop there. They offer delivery straight to your door so you can enjoy delicious, high-quality meats without even leaving your house. No matter where you are in the lower 48 states, Wild Pastures has got you covered. Not only is this the most convenient way to get your meat products, but Wild Pasture meats are better for you nutritionally and they're higher in the total nutrients, phytonutrients, antioxidants, key fatty acids, vitamins, minerals, proteins, and amino acids. And today, for keto campers, for a limited time, you can get 20% off every box plus free shipping for life and $15 off your first box. This is a crazy deal, and I hope you take advantage of it. So make the switch to Wild Pastures today and save nearly $1,000 on your grocery bill while feeling healthier and enjoying the best-tasting meats of your life. All you need to do 
is go to the link in the podcast notes down below. Everything is already applied. All you got to do is click that link, customize your order, and you'll have some delicious, healthy tasting meats very soon. Head to the podcast notes down below, click the link, enjoy your wild pastures. Okay, let's get right back to this episode. But let me ask you this then. What's the safe amount of linoleic acid that we can consume? Because I know it's not about just eliminating them 100%, just like we can't be toxic free. But what is the safe amount we can consume and still thrive? Yeah, that's the perfect question, Ben. And, and the question that I started asking myself back in 2018 and 2019, how, how much can we consume? First of all, we modeled an American diet in 1865 before we had any vegetable oils in the diet whatsoever. And it turns out that we consumed approximately 1.1% omega-6 linoleic acid in 1865. Americans did. And we, of course, were fantastically healthy. By 1909, that had increased to, I think, around 2.28%, if I remember the number right. Um, it, it had effectively doubled. Why had it doubled? Because we had cottonseed oil and soybean oil in the food supply at that point. Not very much. It was only about eight or nine grams a day in 1909, I think is the number. And before that, we were getting it from like chicken and beef, et cetera. Yes. It's actually found in there, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You will get linoleic acid in every single natural food there is. You cannot name a food that doesn't have it. You know, nature put omega-6 linoleic acid and omega-3 alpha-linolenic acid, so LA and ALA respectively, in all foods. So even when you think that, you know, if you, if you think you're getting an, a food that is fat-free like oranges or bananas or white rice, they all have fat. Every single thing that you can pick up and eat, I don't care if it's processed or unprocessed, unless it's made in a lab and they've extracted every last microgram of fat out of it, it will contain omega-6 linoleic acid and you will get enough if you eat food. All right. So you never have to worry about getting too little. So back to the numbers. So by 1999, our omega-6 linoleic acid was 7.2 something percent, I believe. And by 2010, we're at, or 2008, these are approximates, okay? I don't have these numbers exactly in my head, but um, I think it was 2008, we're at 11.8%. That is an exact number, omega-6 linoleic acid. And so we went from 1.1% in, in 1865 when we had no oils to 11.8% in 2008 when we're more, you know, essentially we've gotten extraordinary obesity rates and overweight and all this other chronic disease, right? And, you know, diabetes, by the way, had risen many thousands of fold. We can go through that in further detail. But, it, but what I did was I started looking at ancestrally living populations because this is getting back to your question, which is critical. How much omega-6 linoleic acid should we get? What should it not exceed? Well, there's four studies that I think are the best representative examples. In fact, they're about the only ones. They were done by Ian Pryor, P-R-I-O-R, just like the word Pryor, and colleagues. In 1969, they analyzed four populations. Um, this is all in the book. The New Zealand Maori, Europeans from New Zealand, the Pukapukans of Pukapuka, and the Pukapukans of Rarotonga. Those are two South Pacific Islands, and they did body fat and fatty acid analyses, and they ran those with good, you know, with gas chromatography, the perfect way to analyze body fat, fatty acids. 
And it turns out that the average of those, I could give the individual numbers, but the average of those in omega-6 linoleic acid in their body fat was 2.86%, okay? Where are westernized populations today? 7 to 12% omega-6 linoleic acid in their body fat. Americans were at 9.1% omega-6 linoleic acid in our body fat in 1959, all right? 9.1%. By 2008, we were at 21.5% in our body fat. So where, should, so where should we be? It should be under 3% if you're on an ancestral diet is where it really should be, maybe 4% maximum. But like I said, westernized populations are 7 to 12% omega-6 linoleic acid in your body fat. As I mentioned right at the beginning, these fats accumulate in our body fat and set up this pro-oxidative, pro-inflammatory, toxic, and nutrient-deficient environment, which is a perfect setting for heart disease and cancers and diabetes and metabolic disease. That's what it all stems from. So again, we're just being poisoned with this, Ben. And when you consume poison, it poisons every biological system. The poisons are not selective generally. There's almost no selective poisons. You know, if you consume arsenic, it poisons everything. And I've made the comparison, even in the book, I, uh, I believe I did. It's in, it's in my head a lot, but, but you know, arsenic has a lot of parallels to uh, vegetable oils. Why? Because they're both pro-oxidative. And it is oxidation in the body that is by far and away the worst driver of chronic disease. It's It's not inflammation. It, number one is oxidation by far and away. It's like we're rusting inside. And these, these omega-6 and, omega, and even omega-3 fatty acids, they're prone to oxidation because of the double bonds. And when they're attacked by free radicals, which there are gazillions of in our bodies all the time, that, you know, this sets up an environment to, for us to essentially rust inside, oxidize inside. And this also produces these downstream metabolic advanced lipid oxidation end products called ALs, which are things like 4-hydroxynonanol, malondialdehyde, those are 4-H&E, malondialdehyde, MDA, carboxyethylpyrrole, acrolein, 9 and 13 hove, the list goes on. There's hundreds of these different, different chemicals that collectively are cytotoxic, genotoxic, mutagenic, carcinogenic, atherogenic, thrombogenic, obesogenic, diabetogenic poisons to us, right? And some of these, like acrolein, are shared in, you know, they're, they're in vegetable oils and they're in cigarette smoke. And you get a lot more out of them in high doses of vegetable oils than you do in cigarette smoke. And so acrolein is the primary toxicant of cigarette smoke, probably the, the primary mutagen carcinogen in cigarette smoke. And you get a whole lot more out of these in a large French fries. Uh, a large McDonald's French fries I've shown in the book it is the equivalent to, in terms of acrolein exposure, is the equivalent of smoking 18 to 26 average cigarettes or up to 97 cigarettes that are the lowest in acrolein. And all this data is proven. This is all done. Martin Greutfeld in the UK did all this, this, these analyses on um, the content of acrolein in heated vegetable oils. And the tobacco companies that were required to do all this research, they've shown how much acrolein there is in their own cigarettes, right? So the, <laughs> that's coming from tobacco companies. So I just put the data together and figured out you know, how much is it equivalent to. So you, you know, set your little child down. We have a picture of this in the book. You know, to a plate of French fries, 
you might as well be allowing him to smoke or forcing him to. So what I'm hearing is that if you had an option between smoking cigarettes and eating vegetable oils, which option would be more detrimental? You're saying it's the vegetable oils is what I'm... Absolutely. I would choose smoking any... If I had to choose between the two, I would smoke every single day before I would consume vegetable oil. Me too. Same. I would smoke... I would be a pack a day smoker. And in fact, you can see you know, significant populations like the South Pacific Islanders the Catavans, for example, you know, there's a lot of smoking on those islands. And these people, um, like the, uh, the Papua New Guineans of Tukacinta, there's lots of smoking. But these people didn't have, they don't tend to get lung cancer, for example. And they, they're, they seem to be much less susceptible to emphysema, to COPD, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. Why? Because of their, their diet protects them. You know, Weston Price reviewed this extensively in these, these populations that lived in these smoke-filled huts in, in the Outer Hebrides of Scotland. They, they were exposed to this constant smoke year-round, but they didn't, they didn't have tuberculosis, and they weren't dying of lung disease. You know, they remained healthy because their, their densely nutritious diet of seafood and oats protected them. It's that what we see all around the you know all around the world. There's many examples of this. So, I certainly again, I'm, it, you know, I'm not suggesting anyone should be smoking. It's it's a terrible thing. But allopathic medicine presents the story as though smoking is by far and away the worst absolute thing you could do to yourself. I I vehemently disagree with that belief system. The evidence does not support that at all. I think it's processed food, vegetable oil laden diet is. It, tremendously worse than smoking. Yeah. When I asked Dr. Kay Shanahan, she said the same thing. Did she? I yeah. have a... Yeah, she did. Yeah. I said, what's worse, smoking cigarettes, eating sugar each day, or vegetable oil? She said, that's easy. It's the, the vegetable oil. So yeah. The same thing you said. Yeah. Yeah. Um, quite, so I want to make a distinction here. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this because I, from my research and my understanding, and you've done way more than me. However, there is a difference between adulterated omega-6 fats, those that are heated with these detergents, et cetera, versus those that are unadulterated, right? Can we make that distinction? And if we do, let's say somebody's consuming like a, um, a sunflower oil that is organic, cold-pressed, and they're not heating it. They may be using it for like a salad dressing. Would they have more flexibility with that 3 to 4%? Where they, would they potentially be able to consume more because it's not adulterated? Are you saying all of them we should limit? Yeah. Um, well, if you're consuming high omega-6 seed oil, vegetable oil, and they're all high omega-6, if you're talking seed oils, all right? So if they're not heated, that oil will have less of the advanced lipid oxidation end products in the oil. However, all of these advanced lipid oxidation end products can also be produced metabolically in our bodies. So if when you elevate the omega-6 in your own tissues, which you will over time, these will accumulate. And as they oxidize, they can produce all of these advanced lipid oxidation end products. So if you think, well, this is a cold-pressed grapeseed oil or safflower oil or take your pick, right? And it's never been heated. Is that better? Yeah, it's better. But it's kind of like the smoker saying, you know, well, I'm only smoking now 15 cigarettes instead of 20. You know, is that better? Or I'm smoking a lower tar cigarette or something like that. Yeah, you, you know, you probably made a little bit of an inroad, but why do it at all? I mean, it's so simple. No, but here's the thing. 
Ben, I've never heard anyone say to me, oh, I just really miss my vegetable oils. Nobody says that, you know? People will miss their carbs and their sweets and their, you know, whatever, their coffee, Starbucks coffee loaded with cream and sugar and all this stuff, right? They'll miss that. But nobody ever misses a vegetable oil. And and it's the number one thing to remove. And if you just replace it with good quality fat, like butter or lard or beef tallow, or you could use coconut oil or palm kernel oil, those are both 2% omega-6 linoleic acid. And possibly a good quality, authentic olive oil, which is higher in omega-6. We can get into that if you want. But But anyway... Here's the thing is if you just understand this simple concept and you recognize that the omega-6 is driving all of this disease, it's easy, I think, once you understand that, to begin to decrease those in your diet. Even if you're eating fast food and restaurant food, uh, you can, by ordering correctly, you can avoid a lot of that oil. Hey, Keto Camper, what if there was an easy way to help detoxify your body, ease stress, unwind, and hey, even burn more calories. What I'm talking about is sauna usage. Now, there's a lot of studies that show the benefits of using a sauna, and it could be kind of complicated because they're expensive, and typically you have to go to a facility to use a sauna. What I love about my sauna is that it's a blanket that I use at the comfort of my own home. I use the one from Bond Charge. And sauna blankets work by raising your heart rate to that of physical exercise so you burn calories while you're relaxing. And you could burn up to 600 calories in one session. Sweating also helps flush out toxins like heavy metals from your body. And elevating your heart rate while relaxing releases endorphins, which can leave you feeling euphoric. I feel like I just got a 60-minute massage when I get out of this thing. It works by using infrared light, which heats the body directly rather than the air around you like a traditional sauna. This means you get the same benefits at a lower heat. You also don't need to have your head in the heat like a traditional sauna. It's very easy to use. You can enjoy a session of 30 to 45 minutes while relaxing, reading, watching TV, or meditating. It's easy to clean. It's low EMF, especially compared to other brands out there. Simple and easy to get set up. And even more important, you, Keto Camper, are offered a nice coupon code for Bond Charge's products, including their infrared sauna blanket. So head over to bondcharge.com slash ketocamp and use the coupon code ketocamp at checkout to get 15% off your order. We'll drop that link down below along with the coupon code in the podcast notes. Okay, let's get right back to this episode. So have you studied, um, he's not a doctor, he's an MIT researcher, Brian Peskin before. Have you ever heard of him before, his research? No, I don't think so. Yeah, so Brian Peskin, I've interviewed him a few times and he's a really smart guy. He's written a book called The PEO Solution, which is all about parent essential oils. And he makes the case with his research that there is a time and place for high quality omega-6. And he goes into the, the metabolic pathways and he talks about PGE1 and He's a big fan of them, and he believes that there's a difference between the adultered ones that are omega-6 and the unadultered ones. So do you think all omega-6 are bad? Is there a time and place? I just want to make a distinction because I'm trying to find a middle ground here. I do. Well, okay, first of all, first of all, I think omega-6 
is really good. You have to have it to live. I, you, I, you literally cannot, to, in my view, I don't think it's, you, we're not, we cannot survive without omega-6. Um, Burr and Burr researchers back in the 1930s, around 19, early 1930s, began to prove that a diet had to contain fat, had to contain linoleic acid, and ultimately the determined alpha-linolenic alpha acid, in order for animals to survive and be healthy. Otherwise, they would begin to decompensate in all sorts of ways, which began with deterioration of their skin and their teeth, if I remember right. So you have to have linoleic acid. And, and, and I could just make a case to say, well, this is just like we, we could draw analogies to any single vitamin or any single mineral that we have to have all of these, but in the right amounts. And there's a toxic dose for everything. And so there's a sweet spot for everything. You can't have too little. You can't have too much. You have a sweet spot for everything. And so I would argue that, to me, all of the evidence suggests that anything over 2% linoleic acid is going to set you on a path to develop much or all of this chronic disease. And, you know, just for example, Clement Ips research back in 1989 in animals showed that he put uh, rodents on various diets uh, containing omega-6 beginning at 0.5% and increasing by 0.5% increments up to, I think, 12%, which would be, be very similar. 12% would be very similar to Americans today, right? We're at 11.8% as of 2008. And then he exposed these animals to DMBA, a carcinogen. And, and then evaluated them for mammary tumors, so basically the equivalent of breast cancer in humans. And this is there's a graph on this in the book. I just you know just used his graph and modified it slightly. Um, but anyway, you see an increase in the breast cancer rate, the mammary cancers or tumors in these animals up until they reached 4.4% omega-6 linoleic acid, and then it kind of levels off and doesn't change very much after that. So once you're above one and a half to 2%, you've already got plenty omega-6 linoleic acid and you shouldn't have more. And all of these native traditional living populations I've looked at, they're all under 2% omega-6 linoleic acid. I can't, I mean, so far, I don't think I've seen any that were completely ancestral that were above 2%. If they were, they're not, they're not much above that. So... And it's going, as I said, once you go up higher than 2%, you're going to drive cancer, you're going to drive heart disease, and I think you're going to drive, you know, uh, insulin resistance and, all, and virtually all the metabolic disease. So it makes no sense to me to, to look for a good, you know, healthier type of uh, fat. These are not natural, Ben. The, you know, if you think of processed Vegetable oils are the single greatest component on a caloric basis of processed foods. And this is where there's a disconnect because nobody argues that processed foods are the problem. Nobody argues that. The you know, American Heart Association to World Health Organization, the Pan American Health Organization, all of the major institutions that all tell you processed foods are bad. What is the number one component of processed foods on a caloric basis? It's vegetable oils. Yeah, yet the American Heart Association has their stamp of approval on that canola oil at the grocery store. So let me ask you this then. How do we measure what levels of linoleic acid we have in our body fat? You, you mentioned that study with uh, 
what was it called? Um, chromatology. Oh, gas chromatography. Uh, to yeah. yeah, I mean, how, I'm, how do we do that? Yeah. Like, how do we know how much percentage we have? Yeah, it's, it, it's not a test that you can just go have done. Um, and I, I'm so far, I'm not convinced that, uh, well, if you do analyses of the omega-6 and omega-3 fatty acids, the fatty acids in your blood, it will be very, very reflective of what you've recently eaten. I'm not convinced yet that there's enough evidence that, that we can really test this by analyzing the blood. The evidence is just not there yet. I'm not saying that it won't be at some point. Um, maybe that's possible. But, you, but it, the way it's been done in all the studies is an adipose biopsy. So you biopsy a little tiny bit of fat out of your butt um, or off of your abdomen and that is sent in for a fatty acid analysis. Um, it has to be done with uh, gas chromatography or high-performance liquid chromatography, and uh, which has been available, by the way, since 1952. And so all of these studies, have, you know, I, I would never quote anything that hasn't been done with one of those technologies. But anyway, that's how you'd measure it. But I can tell you that I, I've never, so I, I've never had a, an adipose biopsy to analyze my fatty acids. However, I have been on an ancestral diet now for about 12 years. And um, in other words, you know, virtually seed oil free. And so I would expect my body fat is less than 3% omega-6 linoleic acid. Now, and I'll just tell you very quickly that the half-life of omega-6 linoleic acid in the body fat is 600 to 680 days. Roughly, it's two years. And so it takes a long time to increase the omega-6 in your body fat, and it takes a long time to reverse it. All of your fatty acids in your body, one study showed, can be turned over in three years. So, but here's the good news is, so you can, if you eliminate vegetable oils today, today, I believe in hours, your risk of heart attack and stroke will go down. Why? Because you're already decreasing the inflammatory factors within hours. So the inflammatory uh, prostaglandins, leukotrienes, eicosanoids, and thromboxanes will all go down. Clotting risk goes down. Vasoconstriction goes down. You know, inflammation goes down altogether, right? So we're safer by the end of today if we eliminate vegetable oils today. You know, over the next few months, our body fat starts, you know, linoleic acid starts to go down. In three years, you will be at an ancestral level if you keep your omega-6 linoleic acid consumption under 2%, which is where it should be. Yeah, that's, that's very promising. And, and you could speed it up with things like fasting and other methods to burn to use body yeah, fat. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah. I think the best way, if you want to move it fast, is... Get your omega-6 linoleic acid as low as you can. And that means, by the way, Ben, to you and everyone, is you, you have to eliminate all the highly polyunsaturated vegetable oils, which I, I named. I can name again if you want me to. You have to eliminate the animals, the monogastric animals that you consume that consumed corn and soy. That would be primarily chicken and pigs, pork. And why? Because monogastric animals like chicken and pigs, they're like us when they consume high omega-6 diets. And in their case, it's corn and soy. They're fed in CAFOs. And that raises their omega-6 linoleic acid in their body fat up to 20% and, and higher. So you have to eliminate those. So you're going to get your, if you're eating chicken and pork, you want to try to get those from animals that are not fed corn and soy. And that's very, there's precious few uh, farmers and ranchers doing that, but you can get those. It's a similar situation for the eggs. So you have to have eggs that are 
you know, from chickens that are not consuming corn and soy. All right. There's one other source of high omega-6 and it's nuts and seeds. And so I would say eliminate those from your diet. And in, if you do those things, you get rid of the highly polyunsaturated vegetable oils, you get rid of the uh, CAFO raised and, you know, chicken and pork. It doesn't matter about beef so much. I can, I'll come back to that if you want. And then get rid of the nuts and seeds for the most part. In three years, you're going to have omega-6 body fat that is down at an ancestral level. And guess what? In my view, I think you're going to virtually eliminate your risks of heart attack and stroke. I think you will practically eliminate your risk of cancer. Metabolic disease will all completely reverse unless there's other big problems that are causing inflammation. For the most part, I think you're going to reverse all of these dreaded consequences. Macular degeneration stabilizes. And we've seen this now because I have people that have been following this diet now since 2016. That's so about almost seven years. And we see virtually every one of these people has stabilized their macular degeneration. And some have gotten better, but the majority, just, they just halt. They don't progress, which is typical. We generally expect progression. So it's the same thing you see with heart disease. It stops progression and it reverses. And we've got a very good friend here, a PhD researcher, um, Gary Koyen, K-O-Y-E-N, PhD, um, is running a, a practice in Boulder, Colorado. And he reverses heart disease using exactly what I'm talking about. Using, first thing he does, gets people off of vegetable oils. And he has, has a study, we're going to try to publish this, 25 patients and more than half of those, I think it was 13 of those, had reversal of their coronary artery disease on coronary artery calcium scanning. So they dropped their numbers down substantially, some of them by more than 100 points. And this is just over a year or two. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, most people will say you can't lower that score. That's you know, <laughs> proof right there. I've seen it as well. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to publish that because it's absolute proof and it's, it's undeniable. It's amazing. And, you know, speaking of testing, you know, one of the arguments I get when I make videos on vegetable oils is, ah, I eat vegetable oils and my C-reactive protein is totally fine. But to your point, it takes time for that to change. And, and there's a difference between the oxidation and inflammation. But a test that I use is actually a urine test that's measuring um, malondialdehyde in the urine, which is showing you like the oxidation of the fats. And I've correlated those who are consuming a lot of vegetable oils, because I always ask my students before they get into my program about their diet. I have them do this test, and it, the darker it turns, the more inflammation around their membranes. It correlates to the more of the vegetable oils they consume. And as we first thing we do, we remove those vegetable oils, and then we just start changing everything. Then we see those levels drop. Have you ever tested or heard about a test measuring the the urine, the um, monodialdehyde in the urine? No, the no, Ben, okay. I certainly haven't. So everything you just told me there is just news to me, and uh, I, I really, I really like it. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, that's really like interesting. Yeah. And it's affordable and you can do it at home. So I'll, I'll send you some info on that and, and you could vet it yourself. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Very interesting. Next question was, you know, restaurants, something that I always do. And I've heard you do the same thing. I love that we're on the same page here. I learned this from my mentor, Dr. Pampa. He taught me to do this at restaurants because to your point, fanciest restaurants in the world, they're going to have vegetable oils, whole food supermarket. They're going to have vegetable oils. It's almost impossible. But when you use the word allergic, they're going to pay attention to you. You're going to love this, uh, Chris. I've been telling my students to use that same verbiage for years. And I always use it. My fiance rolls her eyes at me sometimes, but I'm like, I don't want to take that hit, right? <laughs> yeah. And I've been telling my students for years to do the same thing, but they don't do it. And I think they feel uncomfortable for whatever reason. So what I have done 
I created a seed oil allergy card that I give, <laughs> I give all my students. It says, Dear Chef, I have food allergies to vegetable oils. In order for me to avoid an allergic reaction, I must avoid all those oils you mentioned, the bad ones. The, follow, the following alternatives are safe, like real olive oil, et cetera, lard, butter. Please make sure they're not cut with the bad option. So I just have my students show this to the server and they really pay attention when you show this. Yeah, that's that's great. One of my best friends, a lady and her husband, they're, they're, they're both physicians from England and she has macular degeneration. And so we connected way back in, I think, 2016 when my book first came out. And she's the one that taught me this. She said, I just started telling people uh, in restaurants that I'm allergic to seed oils. She said, it's, it's my body at stake. And uh, I said, you're right. You know that. And so I got the idea from her and I do use that. Um, one caveat is that, uh, that we found is that some restaurants, they are so afraid that even that trivial amount of oil that might be on a grill, I mean, like an open, like a, a typical fire, you know, open fire grill. I, I mean, that might, that's a pretty small amount of oil there if that's a grill, hot grill. But anyway, um, they, in order to avoid that even, they like, if you have a steak, they may cook it in foil um, is what we found. They just, without even asking, they just put it on in foil and that kind of ruins a steak. They yeah, don't, plus you don't, they don't come get, out very good. You don't you want know? the aluminum from the foil. So that's good to you know. know. Exactly. That's the other thing is, yeah, then you're probably getting aluminum. Yeah. So that's good to know. So when I make the request to ask them to grill it, I'm going to make sure they're not using the foil. And they might say there might be a little bit of vegetable oil on the grill. I'm going to say, that's okay. As long as it's not a big amount, that should be okay. Yeah. I think if they, you know, they could even just wipe the grill and, there you, um, go. you know, and here's the thing, Ben, is, there's been studies of where you know people were required to consume large amounts of oil for for up to five months solid, and it did not change their body fat linoleic acid at all. Really, zero. And this was um, what I, I wish I could remember the numbers, but it was a staggering um, amount of vegetable oil. One person in one study consumed over five months, and his body fat did not change at all. His body they, fat. They measured. They, yes. they did a biopsy. And they measured the. Yes. So where where was it going, and and what happened there? Here's the thing. I don't know where it's going. If he you know burned most of that up, but here's the thing: is it goes back to what I said in the beginning that half life is really critical, and you're you have to understand you can't change your adipose. Uh, your, your, you know, your cellular membrane, linoleic acid, those fatty acids, they won't change very fast. They're stubborn in this. They're very resistant for a while, you know, and this is why it takes a long time to change them, either increase them or decrease them. So if you went on a trip and you just got a, you know, you've been on an ancestral diet for years and you know your body fat, linoleic acid is going to be under 3%, I'm sure, if, you, if, if, you've, if you've done it all right. And then you went on a trip for two weeks and you got a slew of vegetable oils. It's not going to change your body fat, linoleic acid, at all. It just really can't. That's the good news. Again, I try to avoid all vegetable oils. And I think the easiest way to do this, Ben, in my view, in our view, my co-author, Suzanne Alexander, on this, our view is, is just try to avoid them. And the easiest way to do that is just prepare your own food. I probably consume 97% uh, of meals at home 
And, you know, for people that are taking their, you know, they're, they're going to work or whatever. And this is where you know, a lot of people are consuming fast foods and restaurant foods is uh, when they leave home, they're away from home. And I would encourage those people to consider trying to, you know, take your food with you. Um, you know, where you can prepare your own food at home, you know exactly what's in it. Because it's hard to trust restaurants. And you're just in a danger zone when you leave home and have to order out. You're right. That's the best option. So, or you could get your seed oil card for those who are going to eat out. Yeah. Seedoilcard.com for those who want it for, for free. L- last question is on fish oil. You mentioned the double bonds, right? We know that that's part of the reason why it's, tr- it's very aggressive at attracting, uh, attracting oxygen. Uh, Dr. Kate Shanahan says poofas go poof because of what you just explained. It's a great way to remember it. But uh, fish oil actually has more of these double bonds. And I am not a fan of fish oil. I, I always tell people to stop taking it because of what it does. So I want to hear your thoughts and if you've done research on fish oil. Yeah, absolutely. And th- that's in the book too. And as I mentioned, the omega-3s are at higher risk of oxidation than the omega-6s. And this is all in the science. This is all proven. Again, the, you know, the higher the number of double bonds, the greater the risk. So I believe... You know, the oils, the fats from fish are healthy, right? And these long chain omega-3 fatty acids, EPA and DHA, the 20 and 22 carbon omega-3s definitely are healthy, but I don't think we're required to have significant amounts of those in our diet and still be healthy is, is my belief and philosophy based on everything I see. There's just too many populations that could never get it's true. Any significant fish or seafood. They were landlocked, yeah. Yeah, they're totally land. And, and 19th century Americans are the perfect example. Almost all of them, they didn't have access to a, a lot of seafood. They did eat a lot more oysters in the 19th century. That was pretty common because they were canned. And so eating oysters was pretty common. But the enormous majority of Americans wouldn't have had access to fresh fish. And of course, there wasn't any farmed fish back in those days. But the omega-3, if you pull it out of the animal or the plant and you, you put it into a bottle or put it into a, a capsule, it's going to be exposed to oxygen to some degree, to heat and to light potentially. It's going to oxidize. And on a gram-for-gram gram basis, if you know the studies show if you look at the oxidized, the advanced lipid oxidation end products, which we talked about, those ales in omega-3s that are in, that are, uh, you know, in a, in a bottle or in a capsule versus seed oils, they're higher in the omega-3s, which is exactly as you said, these are more dangerous. I think that there's only one reason to try to increase your omega-3s uh, to try to ward off the problems of a higher omega-6. That's really what you're trying to accomplish, which doesn't really work, but the, but the only methodological reason to do that, to consume omega-3s, is because the omega-3 and the omega-6 fatty acids, so omega-3 being ALA and omega-6 being LA, those, when they're converted to their longer chain counterparts, omega-3 would be EPA and DHA, and omega-6 would be arachidonic acid, which is the 20-carbon omega-6, those are converted by the elongation and so the saturase and elongase enzymes. So those the omega-3 and omega-6s share the same enzymes that convert those the metabolites to the longer versions, right? So if the idea is, is if you throw a whole bunch of omega-3 in there, you're converting more omega-3 to the longer chain 
fatty acids, right? Instead of more omega-6 linoleic acid going to arachidonic acid. And the downstream products of arachidonic acid are those products I mentioned, the eicosanoids, the prostaglandins, thromboxanes, and so on, right? And so these are the problematic metabolites. But it doesn't... it, the problem is, is it doesn't really work when because it's just a temporary fix, and you can't do it all the time, and you can never solve the fact that you've just got this boatload, a barn load of omega six sitting there if you've been consuming seed oils. It's like you know the house is burning down, and you have to you've got to stop the problem, you know, at its root cause. And everybody listening to this is you know going to be a root cause thinker. We all are looking to, let's solve the problem. Let's get at what is the, what is the main problem? And you can't fix it with omega-3s. In fact, and this is in the book too, so the omega-3 consumption over the 20th century almost doubled in the American diet, right? The omega-6 went through the roof, but the omega-3 almost doubled. Why did that double? Because we're getting more fish, we're getting more, well, but the main thing is we're getting more vegetable oils. The vegetable oils have omega-3, right? That's yeah. So and the fish oil, and fish oil consumption exactly. Went up too. Yeah, it's a multi-billion-dollar industry now. Right. Yeah. So you could increase omega three through the roof. You won't fix the problem if you've got high omega six. You've got to solve the omega six problem. So I believe in getting omega threes from fish. From eating, I think fish. that's you mean a, eating. Yeah, yeah for the real, yeah. you know. So, so the best option would be wild caught fish, and I think that's that's a great thing to do, in my view. I mean, I know there's concern about toxins that are in the ocean and all that. And, and I, so, but I do think eating the smaller fish that won't have mercury, I do think that's like salmon as an example. Yeah, but, sardines, et cetera. Um, yeah. 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 There, there's a slew of them. As long as you're avoiding the large fish, fish you know, um, like tuna, shark, um, dolphin, shark. Yeah. There we go. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, those are the ones that are going to be higher in the. And, and, and so many people in our in the in our health space, educators, they're they're promoting fish oil, taking fish oil. I did for years, and so I started to come across research on my. Like, Wait a minute, this isn't this is not adding up. And I looked into the NIH and what they recommend, or what the average um, adult male, six foot male, would need in terms of EPA and DHA. And they said 7.2 milligrams of EPA and DHA daily is required for an average adult male, six foot guy. Pretty good, pretty, pretty big guy with a big brain, right? But the average fish oil capsule is a thousand milligrams, and people are doing two grams, three grams, four grams. This is a super physiological overdose, and it's creating a whole host of problems. And people think it's a, it's a very uh, important supplement to take. It's doing a lot more damage than this helps. Yeah, you know, I, I mean, I look at, and there's so many examples, but I, I love to use the 19th century Americans as an example who, where did they get their omega-3 and omega-6 uh, or omega-3 long chain fatty acids? They got them from mostly from beef. That's right. Right. And, and so, eggs, and right? is there, is there enough there? Yeah. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And is there enough there? Uh, to me, absolutely. So I don't think we need significant you know, we, we need large amounts of these omega-3s of any type. I just don't, it makes no sense to me because we just, I just don't see the chronic disease in those populations that can't get seafood, for example. And there's lots of populations around the world. The Maasai are a perfect example. You know, they're not getting any seafood. They're not getting any fish. You know, their diet is milk, meat, and blood. 
right? And the huge majority of their diet is a liquid diet of milk, milk and, and blood. And so wh- where are they getting? How are they get, you know, not getting uh, all of these diseases if we have to have omega-3s? They're not supplementing, <laughs> you know? They don't get fish or any seafood ever. So, but this is typical if you look around the, the you know, the, around the world. Most populations are, as you said, they're landlocked. Yeah. Yeah, well said. I always finish every conversation with um, a supplement that I call vitamin G, which is gratitude. And I want to ask you what you are grateful for today, Chris. I'm grateful, ironically, for the fact that I developed arthritis because it led me down this path of a greater understanding. And without that, I wouldn't be here today. I'd probably just be uh, suffering and uh, some, from some other thing, <laughs> you know, from, from a, uh, a standard American diet, which I was, you know, kind of on until I was 50 years old. So um, I, I was always trying to be healthy, but I just didn't know how. So, yeah, that's what I'm, I have gratitude for that. That's, uh, that's amazing. Tony Robbins always says, when you find the meaning in your suffering and in pain, you begin to master your life. And that's exactly what you just said. So your book is out, uh, The Ancestral Diet Revolution. You can get it now. We'll drop a link. Anywhere else you want them to go, check you out, website, social media. Um, well, yeah, we have a, a website for Cure AMD Foundation. It's at cureamd.org. And we have a, a website in progress for the Ancestral Health Foundation, and that will be at ancestralhealthfoundation.org. We do have Facebook pages for both of those organizations that uh, my co-author, Suzanne Alexander, uh, runs those. And um, what else? I'm, I'm, I'm on YouTube with a lot of uh, presentations, and uh, yeah, so they can find me in all these kinds of places. Like I said, uh, Ben, I consider myself a public health advocate more than anything and, and a researcher, so... I appreciate uh, everybody just uh, uh, viewing this and, and learning from this and spread, helping to spread this message because that's our goal. Yeah. Well, we appreciate you, Chris. Thank you for your tremendous amount of research. And uh, your book is a valuable resource for those who are... My audience avoids... They try to avoid these vegetables, but I'm sure they're getting a lot of backlash. So you just share the research you're going to get from this book. Everybody get the book here well equipped. You know how to handle yourself when you get the saying otherwise. So Chris, thank you. We got to do round two. I appreciate uh, your work and thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm glad we made it happen. Yeah, I'd love to do round two as well, Ben. And thank you so much. I appreciate it. It's an honor and a pleasure to be here and I appreciate you. I really hope you enjoyed that conversation. Please share this with somebody you know. How good was that episode? The research, the history, if you really want to learn more, go get his book, The Ancestral Diet Revolution. It is loaded with research and graphs, and it's just a phenomenal, phenomenal book. Him and his his colleague, Dr. Suzanne Alexander, wrote the book. We'll drop a link for you down below in the podcast notes. It is available at the time of this release. And share this with a friend. Watch the YouTube version, the video version on our YouTube channel, which is youtube.com slash ketocamp. We'll put a social media down below as well. Consider leaving the show at rating and review. Thank you for listening. Avoid those seed oils. I'll see you on the next episode.
This podcast is for information purposes only. Statements and views expressed on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Benazadi, disclaim responsibility from any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own. And this podcast does not accept responsibility of statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or non-direct interest in products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.